welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are featuring the Wildlands Conservancy. Behold the beauty. Today, I am joined by Fraser Haney, who is the executive director of the Wildlands, to talk about the work the Conservancy is doing. Founded in 1995, the Wildlands operates preserves in both California and Oregon and is dedicated to preserving the natural beauty of the earth and providing important educational programs that teach our children the wonders of nature. Frazier also speaks to the growing participation between the Conservancy and local indigenous communities, and the building of stronger relationships for both the present and future generations. But first, a word from our sponsor. Prairie Restorations is excited to sponsor today's episode of Nature Revisited. Founded in 1977 as one of the first native garden centers in the country, Prairie Restorations has grown and expanded the diversity of our native plants and services. Our mission is to produce and provide the most ecologically appropriate seeds, plants, products, and services to restore and manage native plant communities. Shop our online garden center and receive 10% off your order when you use promo code Nature Revisited. Be the change. Be a native gardener and help restore critical native habitat. Visit prairieresto.com to shop the highest quality native seeds and plants. That's prairieresto.com. Again, that's prairieresto.com. Now back to your show. So, Frazier, thank you for joining me on Nature Revisited to talk about the great work the Wildlands Conservancy is doing. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks for having us on. We're really excited about being here to talk with you today. And I'd just like to start the interview today by saying how our work is made possible through our passionate and dedicated staff who protect these preserves and work on kids' education programs every single day. So our a big thanks to our staff. The work that we do is definitely not possible without them and the support of our many volunteers and donors. So let's start at the beginning. When was the Conservancy established and by whom? Our organization was established in 1995. We were blessed to have this really exceptional support from a very inspired philanthropist and also the leadership of somebody who is a historically visionary kind of conservationist, who's still our board president, David Myers. Those two co-founders created the Wildlands Conservancy and the intent of the organization was what is at the core of many land trusts, which is to protect special places and to connect people with them. They did so with a particular kind of boldness and with a particular emphasis on 
the work being just as much humanitarian as it was environmental. So what is the mission of the Conservancy, and has it changed over the years? Our mission is to protect the beauty and biodiversity of the Earth and to fund programs so that children may know the wonder and joy of nature. And while our mission statement has been the same, essentially, since we were founded in 1995, some of the ways that we approach our mission has become more focused or more differentiated through time. For instance, at the beginning of our organization, we thought that one of the ways that we might get kids outside was to buy and fund summer camp programs. Through time, we've really allowed that to go to other organizations that specialize in summer camps. And we've focused on family programs out to preserve, providing transportation and free programs. We're just starting to get into offering more fellowships and internships. While the mission hasn't changed, the way that we've implemented our mission, I think, has become more focused. What are some of the other accomplishments and how have they had an impact? Wildlands is unique among land trusts or conservancies in that we take on real conservation projects and advocacy projects. We don't shy away from being an environmental advocate. And I can give you a couple of examples of this from our history. One is that when there was a huge push to site renewable energy on public lands in the California desert, the Wildlands Conservancy took a leadership position on steering those renewable energy projects onto disturbed lands or onto rooftops. And we led the national debate about how renewable energy should be situated on landscapes, especially pristine desert landscapes. The forerunner of that effort was our California Desert Land Acquisition. Wildlands negotiated in the early 2000s the acquisition of over 530,000 acres from the Catellus Development Corporation, which we in turn donated to the people of the United States to become part of Joshua Tree National Park, different desert wilderness areas, Mojave National Preserve. Ultimately, about 200,000 of those acres were left outside of a national park or outside of wilderness areas. And those 200,000 acres that were donated became the basis for the creation of Mojave Trails National Monument in 2016. And we led the effort to create that Mojave Trails National Monument as well through some really strong advocacy that landed our, our president in the White House with then-President Obama when the declaration was signed to protect the area. The other way that we've acted in a kind of non-traditional way, we've been the main advocate for more than two decades for funding to create and finish the Santa Ana River Trail in Southern California. This is a river trail that stretches from Mount San Gorgonio, which is the highest mountain peak in Southern California, 110 miles all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And now we're focusing in on more funds and more support to build parks along the river trail and do ecological restoration projects. The Wildland Conservancy operates the largest free preserve system on the West Coast. 
and the largest free outdoor educational program in California. These are big projects. How does the Conservancy sustain itself? A number of different ways, but the most important way that we sustain ourselves is through what we we like to call our visitorship model. Because these preserves are open to the public for free uh, year-round, some of them are quite popular. At these 23 preserves, we estimate our annual visitation is a, roughly a million and a half people a year. So these are people that, that come out to the preserves maybe just once a year, or it might be that these preserves are right in their backyard and they make up the fabric of that person's daily life. As those people come and visit us, one of our principles is if you have to pay to visit nature, you've been dispossessed of a birthright. So we leave these preserves open for people to visit. In turn, our visitors make up a substantial part of our support. They donate to us. They volunteer with us. Many people have left us in their estates. That's what provides sustaining support for our organization. Along with the regular nonprofit, we apply for grants where we can from foundations and the state and federal government to do projects or to help with land acquisition. We have underwriting support for some of our outdoor education programs from different private foundations. So that's really the way that we are able to sustain ourselves and, and grow the preserve system. We're in a really active period of growth right now. To kind of better encapsulate that support and better communicate with people, we've created what we call the Behold the Beauty Association which is our effort to make sure that we're in contact with those people visiting the preserves and that we're keeping them informed about what our organization is doing. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, I would like to kind of get your ideas how the Conservancy is involved and how they kind of view preservation, education, and reconciliation. Let's start with the first one. How does the Wild and Conservancy view the idea of preservation? Well, uh, that's a great question. And when we think about preservation and land protection, there's a couple different things that I might mention. One is we're very actively involved in acquiring new land for preserves to protect new land that could be threatened otherwise. And we identify those places based on their ecological value, on their natural beauty. Uh, do they protect water, rivers, spring sources? But also, are they places that people can get to? Are these places that, are, that have a, a strong human element, a public access element? We can summarize this by thinking of it, are the places we're trying to protect destination properties are they places that would inspire people with their beauty so we really focus strongly on not only preservation of places but public access to those places and one of your biggest programs is has to do with education we believe and we understand that this generation's values to have created and protected national parks and national monuments and wildlife refuges, that's this generation's value. 
unless we instill a love of nature in the next generation, it might all be for naught. One thing that we think of a lot with our education programs is that we live in an increasingly urbanized society. People are cut off and disconnected from the natural cycles and from a daily dose of natural beauty. Our education programs focus, therefore, on getting kids out, especially from urban underserved areas and getting them into nature in an experiential kind of way where kids can see, feel, taste, touch nature, experience nature, not just through school curriculum, but also with their five senses. We do that in a variety of different ways. We've been able to offer free transportation so that we can bring kids out from the inner city or from residential areas. We see about just over 20,000 kids a year in those active kind of naturalist-led programs through the school system. But we also have family programs that run at all of our preserves and kids' activities that serve an additional 40 to 45,000 kids each year. In addition to that, this is one of the reasons that we leave our preserves open to the public for free so that kids and families can come out even outside of an educational program and just have a safe place to be in nature and maybe go play in a river or go walk through a forest. The idea of reconciliation, how does the Conservancy view that area of their work? It's a really interesting question. It's been in our mission and very much in the way that we approach our work since the very beginning about trying to reconcile with nature, trying to not be the master necessarily of these different natural systems, but try and rather be the caretaker for natural systems and promote native ecology, promote native species, especially in the face of climate change, to promote those ecological cycles wherever we can. One thing that's come up more and more recently is reconciliation with Native Americans and Native people. In other situations, we're working on actually bringing a tribal partner in to acquire land with us so that we might manage the larger landscape together and put them in an ownership position. In another case that we're actively working on right now in the Four Corners region, we're trying to develop an intertribal conservation easement on a piece of property that's very important in the cultural landscape. So it would still be one of our preserves, but we would be working synergistically with a number of different tribes to provide things like access, to provide co-management projects, and really return the, a sense of ownership and connection to a place back to, to our tribal friends. Let's go back to the subject of ownership. How has that played a role in the Wildlands Conservancy relationships with Native people? And how involved is the conservancy with indigenous communities? In every area that the Wildlands Conservancy works, in every geography that we have a preserve, 
there are indigenous communities. It takes a different form in every one of those geographies. Every project demands a different kind of partnership. Question about ownership of land. What we're really trying to do is have a positive impact on land conservation at the greatest scale that we can. Let's save the most important places, the most important resource values for the greatest number of acreages. And to achieve that outcome, we have to deal in the modern structure of grant deeds. But at the end of the day, we know that the grant deed that gives us quote unquote ownership of land is not what's fundamentally important. It's not the objective. The objective that we have is to have a positive impact on the landscape and on communities. I think underneath all of that, what's probably most important is that we feel that every person has a deep capacity to have a relationship with nature. So what's most important is that individual relationship to nature. We're doing our part, as so many other people are, to try and provide those opportunities, whether they're through education programs or whether it's through having preserves open to the public for free. Now, as I mentioned, in every geography that we work in, we recognize we're working inside of the traditional territory of an indigenous community or maybe many layers of different indigenous communities. We've worked at the Windwolves Preserve to both make sure that the research that's going on about cultural sites is done respectfully and in coordination with tribal members, with tribal interests, because it's their ancestors. Cultural sites are a living part of the landscape. It's a living cultural landscape. So we recognize that and we've worked towards that. One last point on this, and I think it's a, a very important one. That is many nonprofit conservation organizations that are working in conservation today, they don't want to embrace land ownership. They're perfectly willing to do an advocacy campaign or they're willing to try and buy a conservation easement on a piece of property. But advocacy and conservation easements, they don't give you the rights that ownership does in our society. They, they don't allow you to open a property to the public. They don't allow you to do intensive resource restoration. They don't allow you to reintroduce species on a private property. Land ownership does. That's why we've been able to reintroduce tule elk at Windwolves. That's why we we're taking part and able to take part in one of the biggest estuarine restoration projects on the West Coast at the Eel River Estuary Preserve. That's why we're able to open our preserves to the public for free is because we own them outright. And when we look around in the world, it's a big challenge to own land. And everybody seems to recognize that from state government to nonprofits to even our national parks. The other community in our society that sees the value in owning land and is ready to step up to the challenge consistently in every geography that we work in is tribal communities because they want to embrace 
the relationship with the land. It seems to me that our tribal partners see that fundamental truth and they're willing to take on the challenge of owning land because they know that it's also the greatest promise for conservation. Working with the land is really a conservationist's greatest joy. We have often been taught that indigenous people didn't or don't believe in ownership of land. Have those beliefs, have they caused any conflicts with your relationships with indigenous communities in the present? Not in my view. It really hasn't. I think the way that we've been approached often by the tribal communities and our tribal partners is really with specific requests. We would like to come onto the property to gather a certain kind of plant that we need for a traditional ceremony or maybe a medicine. Tribes that we're partnering with recognize that we're all operating in a legal framework in this country and and that we can take that and almost put it aside and get down to what's really important, which is what do we want to do on the land together? And that's where we like to get to is let's focus on those regardless of a grant deed or the legal concept of ownership. I see your point. I just think that there's something more fundamental underlies our relationship to tribal communities, and that is the outcome on the land itself. So it's different in every single case, and I think it's different on every single project. So the first best thing that we know that we can do as we get to know a landscape or get to know a project is to stop and slow down a little bit and listen and meet people in the field, you know, not just phone calls or Zoom calls, but actually go and meet people in person and listen to what their view of a landscape is, what their view of a project is, and go from there about finding ways that we might work together synergistically. Some conservancies, particularly in Canada, are purchasing land and then deeding it back to Indigenous people or First Nation tribes. Is that something that the Wildlands is considering? Yeah, there are several projects that we're actively working on right now that have that kind of element baked in. And we're early in the process or part of the way through the process, so not quite ready to name which projects those are because it's very sensitive. So I, I think that that's certainly a part of conservation's future. And it's interesting to us, Stefan, in the conservation field, when you look around at land trusts and a lot of conservancies, many land trusts view themselves as an agency which buys land and then turns it over. But for us, it's also a real joy. It's our purpose. We have a great staff of wonderfully dedicated, passionate people about 72 people work for us right now. And to a person, they're very passionate about what they do, whether it's ecological restoration or outdoor education for kids. So that is one thing that really makes Wildlands, I think, stand out from the land trust community is our emphasis on long-term ownership of land. 
how has the climate chaos, as you like to call it, how has that impacted some of the projects that the Wildland Conservancy has taken? That's really created a, a big challenge for us directly. As you mentioned, we like to call it climate chaos or climate disruption rather than just climate change because it's allowing things to happen like new pests are moving into areas that they might never have been before because they were overnight freezing temperatures kept pests out or drought on trees is opening them up to new diseases or new pests. So we have a real challenge right now because the the matriarch trees in our oak forests at many of our preserves are dying. And whether that's from a fungal infection, whether that's from a boring beetle, the common theme is that that climate change is driving change in the distribution of where pests are able to invade. So our forests are really suffering right now. And that means we've We've had to step up to do a lot more work to try and treat diseased trees, to try and plant new trees, to try and understand what distribution might trees shift to in the future. We're trying to look ahead 10, 20, 30 years to what trees might exist in a place. It's been a big challenge physically because, as we all know, the impact of floods has increased. We've had roads wash out. We've had roads slide off. We'll have long-term drought, and then all of a sudden we'll have a year like this. It's really wet. So we've been challenged in those managerial ways very directly. It's a lot of really hands-on work. There's another challenge to it. There's another element of the challenge of climate chaos, and that's sort of an existential challenge. And I think many people in our society are feeling it right now. Like, what can we do? about climate change. It's it's a global problem. It seems like such a massive problem. So aside from just dealing with the impacts on a day-to-day basis, what can we actually do so that we don't just become discouraged and lose ourselves in it? So our answer to that has been twofold. One, we want to establish uh, climate preserves, future preserves might all incorporate not only carbon sequestration, but resiliency to climate change as we think about how we manage these places. One climate action might be that we really take a focus on returning water in streams in different creeks and rivers and trying to enhance the restoration of the the local beaver populations because it turns out that wetlands are incredible about sequestering carbon. Another might be to try and replant large areas of of native forests, which is a real challenge. An example being at our Wind Wolves Preserve in the southern San Joaquin Valley, there were 150 years ago were massive valley oak forests in the canyon bottoms. They were all cut down for ranching purposes, for firewood, to clear more rangeland. And so now we're in the process of trying to replant those valley oaks and regrow those forests where they were historically. But it is very hard because now those places are arid grasslands since the oaks have disappeared. We wake up every morning and think about climate chaos and try and remember that it's not 
under the control of any one of us to address the climate crisis. It's more about defining ourselves on a daily basis. Are we going to be part of the solution? So our answer to that has been to, to design these climate preserves and climate actions at each one of those preserves, and that's how we're trying to address it. How has fire impacted your different preserves? Probably one fire that you heard of nationally was the El Dorado fire in the San Bernardino National Forest. This was the fire that was lit when a family lit off a gender reveal pyrotechnic device, if you remember that. And they, they lit that pyrotechnic device on Labor Day. It was the hottest day in recorded history in the San Bernardino Mountains when the fire started. The fire burned in these beetle-infested, drought-affected forests. And so the fire burned extraordinarily hot. And in many places, it sterilized the soil, it sterilized the seed bank, and it devastated the forests. We're still seeing them three and four years on where they're still sterile ridgetops and mountainsides. So fire is always on the radar. Oh, yeah. Fire is always on the radar. From staff safety to how do we prepare our forests better for what inevitably is coming. Up at our Jenner Headlands Preserve, along with shaded fuel breaks, we've also been working to do some prescribed fire on the landscape to emulate those old practices and what will hopefully be more new practices that are related to cultural burning. So going back and burning out the understory of a forest before a major wildfire comes, that really has increased the, the health of the forest and its resilience and the diversity of different trees and plant species in the forest. Let's focus on the program that the Wildland Conservancy started called Behold the Beauty Association. When was this started? Why? And what is its mission? We started the Behold the Beauty program uh, roughly three years ago. It was when we were doing a lot of thinking about our principles as an organization and the way that we approach our work. We had been approached numerous times by mitigation bankers who were saying, if a species is destroyed elsewhere, that developer is forced to pay to buy land or to do restoration in another area to make up for what was lost. It can be very lucrative. So we had been approached a number of times about getting involved, and we came to the conclusion that we absolutely shouldn't do that because our work should be additional to what's in the law. Our work should create outcomes that wouldn't otherwise happen. This is the same reason that we don't participate in selling carbon credits on the forests that we protect as part of our preserve system. We want to make good happen in the world that wouldn't have otherwise happened. And along with those, that principle about it's the principle of additionality, making something happen that wouldn't otherwise be forced to happen in the existing legal framework, we didn't coin that term, but it's, we've adopted it, the principle of additionality. In addition to that, we want people to really reflect on the fact why do we have to pay to visit nature? Why do we have to pay 
to visit our national parks even. Now, I understand the logic about entrance fees, but it does create a socioeconomic barrier for entry to nature for those who are most disenfranchised from nature. It's part of our principles that access to nature should be free. We should try and tear down some of those socioeconomic barriers. We wanted to create the Behold the Beauty Association as part of our organization to communicate those principles, to communicate the way that we went about our work, and also to build a community around those principles. We wanted to be able to encourage people to bring natural beauty into their daily lives. Come and visit the preserves, go to your local favorite outdoor spot, plant a tree in your front yard. We recognize that we needed to do a much better job communicating and engaging. And that was why we started the association. What are some of the things that the Wildland Conservancy is looking at in the future? It's not just enough to protect land, but we have to engage communities, local communities, underserved communities, tribal communities in the protection of that land. We say that land is never saved. It's always being saved. That takes active participation from the people who care about any of these places that we protect. So in the last couple of years, we've been working as hard as we can to acquire and protect more places. We've expanded from California into Eastern Oregon. Within the next 30 days, we should acquire our first preserve in Utah, down in Southeast Utah, at the threshold of the Bears Ears National Monument. All in all, in this period of time, we'll have protected about 100,000 acres when all is said and done. These places that we're protecting will be open to the public for free, and in time we'll develop those same kind of outdoor education programs. So look for big things from us in terms of announcing new protections on land. A great example that I'd leave you with is the project along the Eel River in California where we purchased a 30,000-acre ranch from the family of Dean Witter. That 30,000 acres includes 18 and a half miles of frontage on the wild and scenic Eel River. This property also is the best access point in that 100-mile stretch of what we call the Grand Canyon of the Eel River to what is the envisioned Great Redwood Trail, which will be a 320-mile trail following the old Northwestern Pacific Railroad from San Francisco all the way to the Humboldt Bay. And our preserve will act as the gateway in the wildest section of that trail. It's those kind of projects, national park level landscapes, large landscapes, culturally important landscapes that we're interested in expanding into in the next few years. We see, we see a real need for it. enjoyed my conversation with Fraser Haney and that you visit the Wildlands website at wildlandsconservancy.org. I would like to take this opportunity to personally thank Elba Mora 
the Outdoor Education Director at the Wildlands, for making this episode possible. Elba emailed me a while back to ask, what does the Wildland Conservancy need to do to be considered for an episode on Nature Revisited? Well, Elba, I think we answered that question. And again, thank you. If you enjoyed this edition of Nature Revisited, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. The music for this episode is Little Martha by the Allman Brothers. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join me for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.